This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Well, good morning, Sunset. Big day for us. God uses human leaders. I think you all know that. And he has throughout Scripture... I think of Moses. God used Moses to lead his people out of Egypt to the promised land. God used Joshua to bring them into that land. God used Deborah and Barak in the book of Judges, a very dark time in Israel's history, to win a great battle, to restore peace to the people. King David, perhaps seen as the greatest leader in Israel's history. Peter. Jesus said, Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. James, the brother of Jesus, who became the head of the church in Jerusalem. Paul, the great apostle. Timothy, one of Paul's disciples, very different temperament than Paul. And yet Paul wrote two letters, first and second Timothy, to help Timothy learn how to lead and pastor the church. And we know from scripture that God gives people the spiritual gift of leadership. Romans 12, 6, he says, we have been given different gifts according to the grace given to each one of us. And then Paul gives a list of gifts. And one of them, he says, if your gift is to lead, do it diligently. I have the spiritual gift of leadership. I didn't think I did it first. Way, way back in the dark ages when I was in youth ministry. Um, what, that wasn't, youth ministry wasn't what made it dark, but it was a long time ago. Uh, I want to make that very clear. In fact, I went kicking and screaming from youth ministry. I did not want to be part of the big church. I wanted to be back there with youth. But anyway, um, I thought I had the gift of administration. And then uh, a youth pastor that I was working with came to me and said, uh, Barbara, I don't think you have the gift of administration. You have no idea how right he was. He said, I think you have the gift of leadership. So as I began to pray about that and study and understand and lean into that, I began to realize, yeah, that's what God is exercising through me is this spiritual gift of leadership. Do you remember the show The A-Team? Back in the day, apparently they did a remake of it in 2010 with Liam Neeson playing uh, Hannibal, not Lecter, uh, but Colonel Hannibal. That, and he had a, a famous catchphrase in that show. Do you remember what it was? Love it when a plan comes together. And I remember when I got into ministry after we'd pull off a camp or a conference or, uh, you know, or we'd complete a sermon series or launch a new ministry or I'd think to myself, oh, I just love it when a plan comes together. And I knew that was the spiritual gift of leadership. It was the taking apart and putting together and taking apart and putting together and taking apart and putting together a a scenario until I was sure we could reach a God-glorifying goal. It's a gift of leadership. Bill Hybels took the gift of leadership and seriously, uh, very seriously, he had built an entire conference and eventually an entire ministry around leading, helping the local church to raise up leaders. And I remember one of the first conferences I went to, 
I remember him saying at the end of that conference, if you have the gift of leadership, for God's sake, lead. So leadership is important. It's important. We also know, however, that human leadership, even spiritual leadership, can have a dark side. Moses didn't enter the promised land because of that dark side of his leadership. David had an affair and murdered man. He was a very poor father. Peter was impetuous. He denied Jesus three times. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 that God, in order to keep him from becoming conceited, it's quite an admission, he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. So we know, if you study church history, you know that spiritual leadership has a dark side. And you can see how that dark side morphs through all of history. It's taken on a unique piece of it these days. Um, I think in our world today, in the modern, postmodern world, one of the ways in which leadership shows its dark side in, is what I would call pastor worship. One pastor said this, I think one of the saddest dysfunctions in much of the church world today is the worship of pastors and other spiritual leaders. He says, I know this dysfunction well from both positions, worshiper and worshipee. I ran into some wonderful friends today who attend a large, good church. And as so often happens when conversation turns towards church or faith, they began to talk about their pastor. The wonderful sermons that he'd been preaching the way he was dealing with a certain personal issue in his life, and how much they appreciate him. Now, don't get me wrong, he says. I care about their pastor. I think he's a fine Christian brother, and I don't mind talking about him. It's just that subtle adoration or veneration that one often hears when talking to Christians. Why does the subject of my pastor come up so often? And he says, believe me, I've experienced it myself. There's a status and a reverence in the Christian world associated with pastor that is in many cases completely out of line. In the process of lifting up certain spiritual leaders, the rest of the body of Christ, the beautiful body of Christ, the awesome body of Christ is putting itself down in comparison He says, not only that, but we are creating an unwholesome expectation upon those we lift up to this special rank of pastor. No wonder so many pastors and leaders burn out. Another former megachurch pastor wrote in a blog that he entitled, When Your Pastor is Bigger Than Jesus. He says, the rise of megachurches and the influence of Christian multimedia organizations have made modern Christian church culture the newest star machine, churning out an endless supply of charismatic men and women of God who seem totally fine with soaking up the spotlight and getting the lion's share of the glory, leaving Jesus as only a quiet, gracious runner-up. And yet, it's really ultimately not their fault. For as much ambition or adulation or attention these pastors may or may not have started out chasing after, there's really no one to blame but ourselves for giving it to them. 
He says, having been a pastor for 17 years and getting to be with around and close to hundreds of professional Christians, I can tell you that no matter how wise, how talented, how God-loving and visionary they might be, they are all as equally flawed and messy as anyone in their congregations. And each of them are ministering amidst a constant and incredible tension between serving a Savior and being seen as one. And none of them, he says, deserve the heart space that was intended for God alone. So God uses leaders, and he calls leaders, and he anoints leaders, and we need leaders, but how do we keep them from being the people that we worship? And how do we help them not long to be worshipped? Well, today we are in Matthew 20, and we didn't plan this. I can, we didn't know when we were planning this series that this passage would fall on this Sunday. God apparently did, however. And we're going to focus on a couple of key verses. Um, and let me read them for you now. We're going to go back and look at the whole passage in a moment. But he's, Jesus says to his disciples, you know that rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. This is the heart of the upside down kingdom. Jesus is saying, do you want to be a leader? Do you want the place of honor? Do you want to be what we now call kind of a big dog leader? Then serve. Become a slave to those around you. And this moment is earth-shattering for the disciples, as we're going to see. But let's kind of build up to this moment, because if we just pull it out, we don't understand the significance of us. And one of the things that I'm going to ask you to notice is that in this case, the clash of kingdoms was not between Jesus and Rome. It was not between Jesus and even the religious leaders, per se. The clash of kingdoms here was between Jesus and his closest followers. So let's go back to Matthew 18, because there was actually a series of conversations that led up to Jesus' statement in chapter 20. So let's go back. There's a, uh, a number of conversations that give us some insight into where the disciples are coming from. And the first one is found in Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus has been teaching about this upside-down kingdom since his first great sermon on the mount, been describing it. And now they want to know, okay, okay, within that kingdom, we realize it's not a kingdom, but who's the greatest? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them and said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, what Jesus is saying, their question is, who is the greatest? 
And Jesus says, okay, if you want to understand this, you have to understand that those with the greatest value in the kingdom are the most dependent. They are the ones who cannot provide for themselves. They are the ones who need others in order to do their life. This is incredible. Now I realize if you're parents of young children, you think your kids are in control, don't you? I mean, you pretty much feel like your world is run by your kids. But really, they can't live without you. They are dependent. They need to be provided for. And so Jesus' answer is those who are dependent, who cannot care for themselves, provide for themselves, who cannot fight for themselves, those who are technically a burden are the ones in the kingdom that should be welcomed. They're the greatest in the kingdom. Now, I know that the disciples are thinking, what? Uh, Jesus, have you lost your marbles? Because this makes no sense to us. And I know this because of the next passage we're going to look at. Go over to 19. In the middle of chapter 19, and there's a thread that runs all the way through. Well, there's a thread that runs all the way through Matthew. For that matter, there's a thread that runs all the way through Scripture. So, you know, this is not a surprise for me to say there's a thread that runs through 18, 19, and 20. And we're going to skip a few of those places, but they're fabulous. And they continue to reinforce what Jesus is teaching. But go to 19:13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked him. Did they not catch the last conversation? Now, I'm here to tell you, I don't think I would have gotten it either. But they said, the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Almost immediately after this, a man comes up to Jesus in the very next section in chapter 19 and asks him, uh, how he couldn't be good. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life is his question. And Jesus, uh, knowing this man's heart and having a sense, the Holy Spirit giving him insight into this man, says to him, uh, you know, first of all, you have to obey all the commandments. And the man says, I've done that. But Jesus knows the deeper things that are going on in this man's heart. And he says in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give them to to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And the man went away sad because he was quite wealthy and he was unwilling to make that sacrifice. What Jesus was saying to him is, if you want to follow me, then you have to make a full sacrifice. You have to lay down everything. In order to follow me. Now, later, Jesus has a conversation with the disciples because they're, they're, they're surprised at Jesus' response. And Jesus says this He says in verse 23, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples are going, What? Run that by me again? There's a lot of theological discussion about what Jesus meant about a camel going through the eye of a needle. And needles were much bigger in those days because they didn't have the fine, but it still meant a camel through the eye of a needle. Almost impossible. What Jesus was saying was, you don't understand, if you're rich, you are not dependent upon God. It's much harder to be dependent upon God if you have what you think is enough resources to live. And he's just said, 
It's the ones who are dependent. Now the disciples are thinking, we don't get this. Because in their day, if you were rich, then you were seen as closer to God and blessed by God. So if you're rich, then you're more spiritual than anybody else, even though you may have been very far from God. Because your riches sent a sign, a message to people that God was with you, that God had blessed you. But remember back in the Sermon in the Mount, what had Jesus said? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And literally, blessed are the poor. They'll see God. And so Jesus, they, they're thinking, this doesn't make any sense. We don't understand this. And at the very end of this whole discussion that he has with them, he says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now let's go over. <clears throat> oh, wait, there's another series of conversations we need to look at in order to understand what's happening in chapter 20. And the first one of those happens in chapter 16. So go back to chapter 16. Verse 21, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And I love this. Peter took him aside. Peter's thinking, Jesus, no, this is not what's going to happen. We're on a kingdom march here. We're ushering in a new kingdom. You can't die because that would end the kingdom. So that's not going to happen. But he doesn't want to rebuke Jesus in front of the rest of the disciples. He's gracious, so he takes him aside. And he says, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God and his kingdom but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And so Jesus is trying to tell them, guys, the kingdom is not what you think it is. Jesus' popularity was at probably its zenith. And they had gotten just a little off of center. They began to think, we're going to be part of this new movement, this great thing. We're going to have power and position and prestige. And this is going to be amazing. No, Jesus, you can't die. So Jesus has the same conversation with them again in 17, verse 22. And when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. This time, nobody says anything like, oh no, Jesus, that won't happen. We're told, and the disciples were filled with grief. And I won't know this until eternity and I can have this conversation with them, but I wonder if their grief was more about the fact that the kingdom would not turn out the way they wanted than that Jesus was actually going to die. And now we're going to go over to 20. Chapter 20, starting with verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve aside, and for the third time he said to them, We are going to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death, 
and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus is saying, do you understand the message of the upside down kingdom? But they did not. How do we know? Look at what happens next. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Now, who can say no to a mom asking a favor on behalf of her kids? I mean, let's be real. I love my boys, Jesus. Please, could you do something for me? She comes. What is it do you want? He asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. Now, one has to wonder, did she do this of her own accord or did her sons encourage her to do so? It'll go over better, Mom, if you ask him. We don't want to ask him. That would look a little too forward. And so she comes and she makes this request. And Jesus says, this line is just so fraught with meaning, you don't know what you're asking for. Kind of like when we pray for patience. (laughs) You know, we tell God, I want to be like you, you know. You don't know what you're asking for. And then he says, Jesus turns to James and John, and he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? I love their answer with all my heart. We can. Yeah. Man. I think I've said that to God a lot. Oh, yeah, God, I can do that. Not realizing at all what kind of sacrifice it would require. Thinking, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Thinking about the kingdom in a different way than it actually is, this upside-down kingdom. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. In other words, we'll sit at the Passover, and you will drink of the cup. And then as you go out after my death and resurrection, you will indeed, as Paul would later say, you will be crucified with Christ, and you will no longer live, but Christ will live in you. So yes, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left, not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by the Father. And I have to wonder if later Peter didn't have those words in mind when he said in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. It is God who gives honor. Not even Jesus could give that honor. When the ten heard this, verse 24, they were indignant with the two brothers. And I don't think they were upset uh, that they asked for a place in the kingdom and the kingdom you know, because it was wrong. I think they were upset that they hadn't thought of it first. Dang, we missed our opportunity. Those two places are already gone. How do we line up for place third, fourth, fifth, sixth? And by the way, Jesus had already told the disciples that they would have a special place of honor in the kingdom. The 12 tribes, I mean, he'd already told them that. But they wanted special places within that special place. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know what's amazing about this statement? Jesus wasn't necessarily condemning that. 
He was saying, look, I know that's how the world works. Long before Machiavelli wrote all of his stuff on leadership, Jesus said, I get that that's how the world works. That's how it happens in the world. Don't be surprised that our world doesn't ascribe to this upside-down kingdom leadership. That's how it is. Jesus said that's how they do it. Not so with you. Not in my kingdom, Jesus says. Not in my church. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And then Jesus, in a sense, cements and defines his own mission. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And how would he serve us? To give his life as a ransom for many. He would lay down his life in order to serve us. He would die so that we could live. Clearly, Sunset, we're at a very special place today, aren't we? First service, I knew everyone was headed over to vote. This service, we've already voted. And now we await for Steve and Michelle to accept the call of coming here. That given the video last week, we're pretty sure they will do that. And he will be our next lead pastor of teaching and worship. I've had the privilege of working with leaders who were more servant leaders than, um, you know, leaders who sought to be served. That's been true throughout my ministry years. But here at Sunset, working with Ken Mulder, with Jay McKenney, Oki Lundberg, and many more. But probably one of the things I've appreciated most about working with Mike Matusik is that Mike seeks to serve the staff serve the body of Christ, not himself. But today is truly a landmark day for us because we're moving forward. After Steve and Michelle's visit in December, I was actually in Montana. Didn't get an opportunity to meet them. But when I got back, and of course it was too early to have it be a full-on candidate visit, there were still, you know, things that the search team had to do and um, there was protocol that they had to work through and um, so it wasn't intended to necessarily be covert. That's just where it happened. And, uh, but Phil uh, Church told me when I got back from Christmas that uh, he had met him. He was very excited about him. And so once I had a name, of course, I Googled him. And uh, I started with the church name because the name name is a little bit tougher. And um, so got, went on the site, read the blog about his accident and what had happened to him and his story. Uh, read some excerpts from Michelle's book, her devotional, about that whole period of time in their life and was deeply impacted by her authenticity, by her reality, uh, by the sense of commitment clearly that they had to one another. Um, and then I went online to listen to a sermon. And I picked a sermon from eight years ago before his accident and looking down the list found Mother's Day. Oh, I'll be good. Let's hear what he has to say about women. That's kind of important to me. And I listened to that sermon, and I was just so encouraged. Just felt like, yeah, God, this could be the man that you've called to sunset. So I began to pray along with the search team and the staff and for God's direction. We didn't know. We didn't know what would happen. 
And, uh, and then last Wednesday night, after my last client of the day, I slipped into the back of the church to listen to the search team as they answered questions about Steve after the presentation last week and, and, uh, and people asking questions, and each one of them sharing their story of their encounter with Steve and Michelle and their family, their boys. And, and, and of course, they were doing what they should do. They were sharing the things that... Uh, that they saw that made them feel like, yes, he would be a wonderful candidate. And so, of course, it was a glowing report, you know. And as I listened more and more, and they're, they're excited, they're enthusiastic, and we would want them to be, right? I mean, it's exactly what we want to hear. But as I began to listen more and more and more, I began to have that kind of sinking feeling in my stomach that, oh, my gosh, he's going to have to come in walking on water. And then we were towards the end of the time, and Bill Van Horn had the microphone, and he said, Folks, you know he is human. It was a good moment. It was a good, good moment. Good moment. Sunset. We do not worship human leaders and pastors. We invite them to come and to be servant leaders. Let's not put Steve in the position where we worship him. We worship one Lord, one Savior, Jesus Christ, God the Father. And, yeah, we don't want to do anything that invites Steve to want that adulation, that veneration that we so often without even thinking about it, give. We want to invite him to come and to serve, using his gifts, his life, his story, to come and serve among us, to serve alongside Mike and a staff of faithful people who have gotten us through this transition. Do not forget about them in the celebration and the newness of someone coming. So let me pray for us. We're going to sing one last song that's truly going to lift up the Lord as the center this morning before we leave. Father, thank you. Thank you for your timing in placing this passage in my lap today. So grateful, God, for the reminder as I look back on my own ministry, the times when, frankly, I leaned into being worshipped and you drew me back to kneel at your feet alongside others and put you first to worship you and you alone. Father, thank you that you gift people with gifts of pastor and leadership and so many other gifts. The whole body, you gift us all. Thank you for those that you've chosen to lead us. We pray your blessing on Mike. We pray your blessing on Steve and Michelle, their children, as they make this huge move back here to the United States to come and be a part of us. But Father, most of all, we want to all humbly serve you. Teach us how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.